Light up, Ashley. There we go. In 1962, there was a theologian named Karl Barth who was a very famous theologian. Uh, he, uh, probably the most famous theologian of the 20th century. And he was in this vein of theology called neo-orthodox, neo-orthodoxy. And he was just a profound thinker. And not everyone agreed with everything he said. Uh, but the way that he thought about the word, the Bible, about the Lord, about faith, it was just it's profound and, and kind of different from what a lot of people were doing at the time. And there's a story that goes like this, that he was giving a lecture at the University of Chicago, and someone came to him afterwards, and there was a Q&A type or time for questioning and he said, you know, Mr. Bart, if, if you could sum up your entire theology in one sentence, what would it be? And he said, well, it would have to be this little song that I learned. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And you think about this, I mean, he was a brilliant man. He probably could have written... Uh, he did write volumes and volumes about his theology. But when he summed it up, it was, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And I was thinking this week about the idea, the, the reality that in Scripture, we have these examples of people who, who preach to themselves, who remind themselves of truths, who, who speak to different parts of themselves, if you will, so I think of Psalm 103 where David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. You know, who's he talking to? Bless the Lord, O my soul. He's talking to his own soul. Right? And he's telling his soul what to do. He's reminding his soul. He goes on and reminds his soul what is true about God. And he encourages his soul to worship. And it just kind of struck me that this little song is, a, is an interesting little song because you're not singing the song to God. And I don't know who the intended audience is of this little song that we, a lot of us learned as a kid. But in some ways, the song is a song that you sing to yourself. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And what I'd like to do is let's just sing that together. Uh, Astrid, can you put up that next slide? So, you know, I think a lot of you know the words. They're kind of small up here, but I think a lot of you will know it. It just goes like this. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong They are weak But He is strong Yes, Jesus loves me Yes, Jesus loves me Yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. Yes, Jesus loves me, 
loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. The Bible tells me so. And so, church, what we've just done is we've just preached to ourselves. We've just preached to ourselves the most profound truth of the gospel and the most profound truth of theology. It's not these esoteric statements. It's not where, you know, you don't have to learn special terms like, you know, ecclesiology and soteriology and penal substitution theory and all these things that if I spouted them off by the time I'd explained them all, you wouldn't care about them. It's this simple idea that God loves you. And, you know, two weeks ago when I was preaching last, we talked about how God is a God of love. And I was trying to make the case from Scripture that God is inherently loving, that God didn't at some point become a loving God. He didn't at some point begin to love, but He had always been love. And we looked at the idea of the Trinity, you know, in other religions that are monotheistic, there's one God, then that God cannot be loving until he creates someone else to love. But because we believe in a triune God, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we, we understand that God always loved because he always had someone else to love, to be in love with. And not only that, but he shared that love among more than one person. You know, it wasn't just a one-on-one kind of thing. There's three, three persons that all love each other, that mutually submit to one another, that honor one another, that glorify one another, that delight in one another, that God is inherently loving. And then I tried to show that when Jesus became human, that was this incredible act of love. To become like someone, to get down on someone's level is an act of love. And that Jesus was saying, not only do I love the members of the Trinity, but I love humanity so much that I'm going to become human. And then finally, Jesus showed his love through our redemption, that he was willing to die for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us on the cross. While we were enemies of God, Jesus initiated this rescue mission on our behalf to save us from our own sin, to save us from uh, the, troubled, uh, the troubled world that we're in, this fallen world, to redeem not only your soul, but to de- redeem all of uh, this created order that had been thrown out of whack and turned upside down by human choices. And so God showed this love in these various ways. But what I want to talk about today is not just that God is a loving God or that God loves humanity. I want to talk about the fact that God loves you. Now, I'm guessing that a lot of you who are here or watching, you already believe that God loves you because you learned that song when you were a kid. You've read it in the Bible. You know, you, you've heard it said many times. But I, I don't want to talk to the part of you that knows that today. Like David, I want to talk to the part of you that doesn't know it. I want you to connect with that 
part of your soul or your mind or your heart that doubts, that says, I know God is loving, but how could he love me? God's seen everything about me. I'm laid bare before him. How could he love me still? Because I think most of us have that part. We have that doubt. We have that question. And so today, we're going we're gonna to preach to our inner parts <laughs> the way David did. We're going to speak to our doubts. We're going to speak to our souls. And we're going to remind ourselves what's true about God and what's true about us and that God loves us. And again, a couple of weeks ago, it was kind of more about uh, these, this general concept of love. But today, we're going to try to make it personal. So we're going to talk about some, some objective realities, but we're also going to talk about some subjective realities. You know, I was, I was doing some research uh, for the message this week. I, I found a couple of different interesting things online about God loving us and how we know God loves us and these things. And I saw two kind of veins that people would, would go along. And one of them was something like this. Uh, you know God loves you because you can have these experiences with the Lord. Right? You can, you can listen to the Lord. You can pray to the Lord and he'll be active in your life. Uh, you can pray for uh, an, this engagement with God and you can have this experience that will show you that God loves you. Uh, okay, that's pretty cool. And then on the other side, there were these people that said, forget the experiences. God's word tells you that he loves you. And what I want to do today is say it's both. God is alive. He's active. You can experience him. And he has given us this sure, wonderful, and perfect word that we can trust. And we don't have to choose one or the other. We can look at both together, and they complement one another. They, they correspond to one another. And I hope that you're going to see that, and I hope that you'll get a sense of that in your own life. So let us look together at what it means that God, God loves you. That God doesn't just love creation. God doesn't just love humanity. But he actually loves you specifically. And Astra, I think this is just not working, so I'm going to need your help on occasion. Um, but if you see me do that, yeah, so... Uh, the, first, the first thing that uh, I was actually talking with Sonia about this this week, and she brought to my mind this passage in Zephaniah 3. And Zephaniah is probably a book that, you know, maybe you've never looked at it, maybe you've never read it. It probably doesn't come up in your daily quiet time. Um, unless you've read through the Bible or you had a specific reason to go there, you may not have spent much time in Zephaniah. But Zephaniah is this really amazing story about God's... Um, God's judgment on Israel, but also his anticipation of the restoration of Israel. And when we think about God and his relationship with Israel, you have to understand that, that in the time that this was written, God had this very special relationship. Out of all the nations on earth, he chose Israel to have this very special relationship with. And he spoke of Israel as his bride, as his wife, that he loved her that he longed for her, but she was not a faithful wife. And there are other prophets that talk about this theme. But we see in Israel's history that over and over again, God would uh, invite Israel into this loving relationship, 
Israel, the, the people of Israel would say, yes, we want that. But then they would turn away from God. They would, they would worship other gods. They would turn to idols. They would, they would forsake God's commands. They would turn their backs on the temple. The, you know, there's, I think it's in Malachi where the, the priests are going hungry because the people aren't bringing sacrifices to the temple and things like that. But God would always draw them back. But there was a time when their disobedience had become so great that God had cast them out of that promised land that he had given them. You know, when Moses took the people out of Egypt and he led them through the wilderness for 40 years and then Joshua took them into this promised land, the land of Canaan, flowing with milk and honey, where where God said, you'll never have to worry about uh, animals destroying your crops. You'll never have to worry about enemies surrounding you. You'll live at peace. You'll have abundance if you just follow me. If you just love me, you'll have everything you need. But they didn't do it. So in Zephaniah, God is pronouncing his judgment on Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the last stronghold when God's people were being cast out of the promised land. They were, they were ripped out uh, by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And so Jerusalem's there holding on, and God pronounces judgment on Jerusalem in, in Zephaniah chapter 3. He says, I have destroyed nations. Their strongholds are demolished. I've left their streets deserted with no one passing through. Their cities are laid waste. They are deserted and empty. Of Jerusalem, I thought, surely you will fear me and accept correction. He's like, you've seen what I've done to everyone else. Surely you'll repent. Surely you'll change your ways then her place of refuge would not be destroyed nor all my punishments come upon her but they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did therefore wait for me declares the lord for the day i will stand up to testify god says one day i'm going to stand up in court and i'm going to give a testimony about all the evil that you've done and then the judgment's going to come He says, I've decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. And the whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. These are, to put it mildly, these are strong words. If, uh, If someone in your life, someone close to you, looked at you and said, I'm going to pour out my wrath on you, that would be kind of scary. Because... You know, if someone decides to pour out their wrath on you, they can do a lot of damage, can't they? But this is the God of the universe. This is the creator of all. And he's pronouncing this judgment. But it's interesting that he's not doing it. It's not that he didn't love them. He loved them so much that he kept calling them and kept calling them and kept calling them, but they wouldn't return. So finally he says, look, this is my last-ditch effort. I'm going to pour out my wrath. But look what he says. Then, meaning after that, this is verse 9 of Zephaniah 3, then I will purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and sor- serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. On that day, Jerusalem will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me. So even when God's pronouncing judgment, he's also giving this hope. 
because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. He says, I'm going to take away the evildoers. I'm going to strip out that which is wrong, and I'm going to leave that which is good. But I will leave you with the meek and the humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. And then he says, sing, daughter Zion. That's another word for Israel, Zion, for Jerusalem. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. And on that day, they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear, Zion. Do not fear. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you the mighty warrior who saves. And then listen to this little promise here. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. We were talking about that a little earlier. That God will rejoice over you with singing. Isn't that just exactly the opposite of we would, what we would expect him to say there? That I'll do this thing, I'll, sh- I'll delight in you, I'll love you, and you will rejoice over me with singing. But that's not what he says. It's the other way around. It's that he's taking so much delight in us that he's singing over us. And the Hebrew here is actually, a, a, the word can also be translated that he cries out with joy. It's not always translated singing. Sometimes it's just this uh, triumphant cry or this, this great, you know, uh, just, you know, ah, you know, like it could be just that joyful yell that God is doing over us. And it reminds me uh, when, you know, when you, when you have that little young loved one in your life and you haven't seen them for a while and then you see them and they're like, they, they're so excited to see you and they're like, ah, that happened to me last night. We got to see a family we haven't seen in a long time. And their little one, she's so cute. She's so wonderful. And when we drove into the driveway, she came out and she just was like, you know, doing this thing. And I was like, God does that for me. God does that for you. It's almost like, again, it doesn't come out so much in the, that he rejoices over you singing is a beautiful idea, but it's a, it's a more raw kind of word than that. He's just like, ah, it's you. It's you. Now, this is a promise for the future. When does this promise become fulfilled? It's fulfilled in and through Jesus Christ. Did you know that you're an adopted son of Abraham or a daughter of Abraham? We won't get too deep into how all that flushes out, but just the idea that these promises are coming true for us, for all of us. So in this time, even in judgment, in this time that this was written, even in judgment, the Lord was anticipating the day when his delight would be so great over his people that he would have that kind of reaction. And sometimes we think that, oh, you know, in the Old Testament, there's a God of wrath. In the New Testament, there's a God of love. No. The, New Te- the Old Testament is filled with God's love. And by the way, there's a, quite a bit of wrath in the New Testament too. 
These, this is one and the same God. Jesus is, not, Jesus is not going to the Father and he says, Father, I know you're really upset, but these are my friends. Come on, help me out here. No, that's not how it works. God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit together said, we love these people so much, let's figure out a rescue plan. Now, they didn't have to figure it out because they, all, they already knew how, to, how it was going to go. But they were in agreement on this. There was, no, there was no coercing or convincing going on. And sometimes we have that idea, you know, Jesus loves me, but does the Father love me? Yes! He loves you so much that he sent Jesus. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. So God the Father in the Old Testament and the New Testament... He is delighting, delighting in you. He's delighting in these specific people. Again, I told you God had a special relationship with Israel. He's not saying he's going to delight in everyone. He's going to delight in those few specific people. And he's actually going to pull out the ones that aren't good. (laughs) Right? He's going to take out all the, the liars and the deceivers. And then with what's left, he pours out this great love. And I know that's a bit of a hard concept too, but it's a real concept. It's a true concept. God is, God is doing this. He is, he is um, uh, weaning out those who are not really his children, who don't really love him. But for those of us, my goodness, who love the Lord, who submitted to Christ, who trust in him for our salvation, who look to the cross and not to our inner selves for all the needs that we have. God's saying, great delight, great delight in you. You know, and that word delight comes up a couple other places. Uh, In Isaiah 62, another prophetic passage, um, God's talking to Israel again, and he he says, no longer will you be called forsaken and no longer will you be called desolate but yeah, I'm going to rename you and he renames you he says you will be called in the Hebrew as Hepziba which means my delight is in her and then he also um, calls the land he says you will not be forsaken you'll be my delight is in her and your land will not be desolate your land will be called Beulah have you ever heard that old song that old hymn Beulah land and you're like, what the heck is Beulah land? And I think most people interpret Beulah land, they just say, oh, it's heaven. But it's, it's not heaven. It's not heaven. It's the promised land restored. And Beulah means married. That's one way to translate it. But it can also be translated owned. And now, you know, ancient cultures, marriage, ownership, blurry line. I know it's weird, but that's the way it was. But what he's saying is you will be dwelt in. You will, you, will, you will be filled. Because in a couple of verses later, he says that your sons will beulah you. Your sons will marry you. So it's not quite marry, I mean, marriage. It's this weird kind of thing. And I think, uh, can you pull that up, Astra? You know, um, actually, no, just, I'm not, I'm, I got my slides mixed up. So it's this idea that, that God says, you may, you may be, you may be feeling desolate. You may be feeling uh, empty. But look, my delight is in you, and you will be filled. 
you will be filled to overflowing. This is, this is, God is saying, look, it's all about this relationship that I have with you. You're not going to be that way anymore. And you know, as we walk this earth, even as believers, we still experience some of that desolation and we still experience that sense of abandonment sometime. But God says, that is not your true reality. You may feel that right now, but that is not the, the most accurate picture of you because you have me and I'm everything and I delight in you. My delight is in her. My delight is in him. My delight is in you. You know, and I remember, you know, this is kind of like, this is the, the objective part. These are the promises of God. But, you know, I've shared with you before that sometimes when I pray, I ask God, where are you, Lord? Can you just show me where you are? Because sometimes it helps me to have a focal point. Do you ever feel like you're just praying into the ether? Sometimes it helps just to like, okay, I'm just going to imagine God in that chair and I'll pray to the Lord who's sitting next to me. But I remember, I've shared the story before, I was in the prayer room back there and I was asking the Lord, where are you right now? And I just got this image that flooded my head of God in the middle of that room dancing. And I think I shared just a couple of weeks ago, I hate and am so embarrassed by my dancing. I don't like, I, will, I hate dancing in front of someone. I don't like it. But man, I got up and I danced with Jesus. And I just knew that his delight was on me and my delight was on him. And it was, that was one of those experiences. And you could say, hey, it's all in your head. Okay, I'll take that. I'll take that thing in my head any day to know in a very subjective way what's also objectively true in Scripture. I'll take that. But I think it was more than that. I think it was God was giving me a picture of his joy for me in that moment. And you can ask the Lord, Lord, how do you feel about me? You can ask him. What's the worst thing that's going to happen? Maybe, maybe you don't hear anything. Maybe you don't get an answer. But you can turn to the word and you'll get an answer. So you always know the answer. But you can ask him, and many times he'll respond. Because you know what? What father wouldn't want to respond to that question from his son or daughter? Yeah, you know, I just imagine going to my dad and saying, Dad, what do you think of me? He's, he's going to tell me. And it's going to, you know, it'll be something to treasure when he does. And we all want that from our father, right? And some of your fathers never gave that to you. Some of your fathers aren't here to give it to you anymore. But you have a heavenly father who wants to give it to you. And he will. And he's done it in multiple ways. So the first thing is just that God delights in you. And again, no matter what you've done, it, you know, Israel was sacrificing to idols and he loved them. I mean, he took care of it, but he loved them. He delighted in them. And so the reality is that right now God is actually inviting you into his love. He's, he's extending an invitation to you he wants you to be in his love. He wants you to have that kind of relationship. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Psalm 81. 
You know, the Psalms are, are beautiful for this kind of thing. Um, for, for these, these, you know, love proclamations, both to, to the Lord and from the Lord. And Psalm 81, another, another thing that Sonia alerted me to this week, I think she was reading in her, in her devotions, and this psalm came up. And uh, here's, here's God talking to Israel again. And he says, I am the Lord your God. This is verse 10, Psalm 81.10. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. He's reminding them, right? So, so much, of, so much of our faith is remembering, you know, reminding yourself. David does this all the time. Sometimes he reminds God, you know. He's like, God, you promised this. You promised that. God didn't forget, right? But David needs to remember but it's these covenant, he's reminding him of his covenant promises and of his covenant works, his acts of goodness towards him. So here the psalmist says, uh, quoting the Lord, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. And, you know, so when Sonia shared that with me, she said, you know, it's, it's this thing, you know, imagine someone says, all right, close your mouth and open wide. How, are you going to do it? It depends. It depends on who's asking and what you think they're going to give you, right? So if it's, if it's your mom trying to give you medicine, you're not, this is, a, this is a kid getting medicine. You know, like really tight mouth. But if you open wide, it's because you think something good is coming, right? You're expecting something that's, tasty and and you and something that you want a lot of you know opening wide right shovel it in (laughs) you know bring it god god say i'm going to give you something so good that you're going to want to open your your mouth wide to fill it and i do i think of those birds those little baby birds that when the mama bird comes what do they do they open up wide we were at borderland a while back and what, what kind of birds were those? The swallows. The, there, there's a little, there's a little uh, structure off by the lake at Borderland State Park. And Sonia and the girls kept seeing these swallows like fly in there and fly out. And then fly in and fly out. And they found this nest with the little birds inside. And the, mom, the mama was bringing the little babies food. And what do they do as soon as the mama flies in? You know, they're a little cheap, whatever they do. They want that in their mouth, and they open them wide. And I love that picture of those birds with their mouths open wide. God says, open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. Fill it with what? Now, this is really important. I I think sometimes we really focus more on what God can give us than who God is. Sometimes we get really distracted by the things we're asking for and we focus on that more than the one we're asking. But if the Lord really is God, and He is, if He really is as great as we make Him out to be, and actually He's not, He's better, then what is the best thing that God could ever possibly give you? Himself. The greatest gift God has to offer is himself. You know, that's why 
the psalmist also says in Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's inviting us to take a bite out of that meal, the meal that is the God of the universe, and see if it's good. And you're going to want more of it. And sometimes we're so focused on what God can give us that we miss out that God is inviting us to himself. He will fill us with himself. And he literally does fill us with himself. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing right now. He's filling us. Right? He indwells us. God has taken up residence in us. And not just in us as individuals, but also in us as a community. The Bible says both of those things. It says that you individually are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that you, plural, the church, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So God is in us and among us because that's the best gift that he can give. I remember uh, when I was 13 being at a summer camp with the church and at our, at our church, there was an altar call every time there was a gathering. You know, anytime the kids were there, anytime the church met, you know, there was always an altar call. And uh, my dad's a pastor. I grew up in the church. And so you, I'm not allowed to answer the altar call, <laughs> you know, because I've been telling everyone I'm a Christian for years and years and years. And, you know, looking back, maybe I was, maybe I wasn't. But I remember when I was 13 having this new understanding of what the gospel meant you know i had always believed there was god always believed in jesus i knew jesus had died on the cross i knew he was raised from the dead but i didn't quite get the connection between that and my need so here i am 13 years old i'd gone through hundreds of altar calls where i did nothing sat on my hands like i can't do anything i can't do anything i can't respond because what do people think? And I gotta, I've got an image to uphold, right? You know, I'm a PK. I've got to keep this together. But in that moment, the pastor was preaching, and it just clicked. And I thought, oh, I didn't understand. I didn't realize that before. That didn't make sense to me before. I need that. I need Jesus' forgiveness of my sins, and I need to walk in him. I need to be in Christ not just believe that he existed. There was something deeper that I needed. And I responded to the altar call, went out, we prayed a prayer, because that's what you do when you respond to an altar call. But from that moment forward, I could not get enough of the Lord, the word of worship, and of God's people. It was 180 degrees you know, my parents would make me go to church, and then I couldn't wait to get to church. They would make me read my Bible, and then I'm reading it cover to cover. I just wanted as much of this as I could get. I was opening wide my mouth. You know, and I bet a lot of you have stories like that where, where God became so real to you in that moment, and then you just had this voracious appetite for more. And that's what you do when you expect something good to come. When you expect something good to come, you open wide your mouth. And so one of the things I want to encourage you this morning is uh, to recognize that the invitation is there. And maybe, <coughs> maybe you've never opened wide your mouth. Maybe you've never responded to that invitation. And, you know, maybe you were like me and you need to come to the altar after we're done today. But maybe 
You just need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm ready for more. I'm ready for more. I'm not going to be the kid who's about to get a dose of medicine. I'm going to be the kid in the candy store. I'm going to be the bird with her mother. I'm going to be wide open to you, Lord. Now, this is what God wants for you. And you can't get anything better than that. You know, when you, when you realize that God is coming not to condemn you, but to fill you with joy, to fill you with love, to fill you with that connection, right? That's the, that's the kind of invitation he's inviting you to respond to today. Because in the end, what God really wants is he wants you to be part of his family. You know, that's, that's the thing. And the two motifs in Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, they're both there in both Testaments, is the motif of marriage and the motif of adoption. You know how they say you can't pick your family? These are the two exceptions. When you get married, you're choosing your family. And when you adopt, you're choosing your family. And God chose these two images to explain his relationship with us. Right? Is that something? You know, when... when I'm doing a wedding for a young couple and they say, oh, in a couple of years we want to start a family. And what they mean is we're going to have kids. We want to have kids. And I always give them a gentle reminder, you're starting a family today. You're starting a family today. You'll expand on your family when you have kids. If you have them, not everyone does. And those people who are without children are still in a family. <laughs> right? And you don't, you don't choose your parents, but you do choose your spouse. And God chose us. You know, he, and, and I'm not going to get into to the, the, the weeds on, on how that works out, but the scripture is pretty clear that God did, God did choose us before the foundation of the world to love us. That, that before we were created, that God wanted us to be in his family. And then that, that motif of adoption. You know, First John 3, um, you know, that we are the sons, sons and daughters of, of God. I mean, it's just, we were actually in First John in our last sermon. Um, I just want to read it to you because it's so good in the way he says it. He says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. You know, God is, God is uh, he's making you family. And, and that's really what a covenant is all about. A covenant is about becoming family. When God makes a covenant with David, he says, today you have become my son and I've become your father. When Jesus makes a covenant with the church. He's called, she's the bride of Christ. You know, and we're the sons and daughters of God. And then Israel was God's bride. You know, this is the language of love. It's the language of relationship. It's the language of intimacy. And it's the language of specificity. This is not just a, 
I love humanity, right? It's easy to love humanity. It's hard to love people. You ever notice that? You know people. You are people. (laughs) It's hard to love people sometimes. God loves people. God loves individuals, not just an amorphous group that, you know, mills around. And the thing is, when you, when you become part of a family, you become like your family. You're, you're, you might be wondering why this picture is up here. This picture was taken, uh, what do you think, Hannah? How old were you there? Three? So, eight years ago. So here's the thing. We were out, right out here. That picnic table, I think, is still there. And I think Sonia took that picture. And then she showed me the picture right after she took it. And I was having this, uh, what's, the, what's it called? When, uh, consonant dissonance. I was like, how did my dad get in this picture? And for the life of me, I could not see myself in that picture. I was convinced it was my dad. It's the way I'm sitting. It's the way I'm holding my head. It's the way my face looks. I'm wearing a baggy t-shirt because I was out doing yard work. And I thought, I just, we just took this picture 15 seconds ago and I cannot see myself in it. But the thing is, when you, when you enter a family, you become like that family. And it happens in a lot of different ways. You know, you've seen these websites of people who look like their pets. I don't know whether the pet starts to look like the owner or whether the owner starts to look like the pet. I think it's the second one. You become like that which you love. You know, in verse 2 of 1 John 3, it says this, Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When we see Christ fully, then we'll become like him. It's this beautiful image, right? I think it's in John 15 where Jesus says, you know, and you're not my servants, you're my friends. Jesus, the Father, the Holy Spirit, always this language of intimacy, always this language of specificity. You know, it's one thing for God to love the world. It's another thing for God to love me. But God does love you. He loves you. And there's a part of you today that doesn't believe it. But there's a part of you today that needs to hear the truth that God loves you. Jesus loves you. Jesus calls you friend. He calls you brother, sister. The Father calls you son, daughter. Jesus and the Father call his people his bride. God delights over you. God takes joy in you. Let me ask you this. What difference would that make in your life if every part of you knew that was true? I read a story this week 
of um, Sarah Blakely. Do you know Sarah Blakely? This is, this is the first at FBC. I'm bringing up Spanx in a sermon. She's the creator of Spanx. She's a very wealthy woman. She tells the story of when she was a kid that they would come, she and her brother would come to the dinner table and her dad would ask her, hey, where did you fail today? Now when you hear that, what do you think first? You think, oh man, I would hate having someone ask me about my failures every day. What kind of a horrible dad was that? But here's what they would do. He'd say, tell me how you failed today. And she would say, well, I tried to do this, and I failed. And he said, that's amazing. Good job. You put your effort into that. I'm so proud of you. What did you learn from that? Are you going to learn anything how to do it differently in the future? Yeah, I learned this. That's great. And he taught her that she was fully loved and accepted in failure and that she should look for failures because her failures would lead her to success. If you know that the God of the universe delights in you and loves you, even when you're in sin, even when you're failing, even when you fall short, even when you're not good enough, and by the way, you're never good enough, that's not the message. The message is not you're good enough. The message is you're not good enough, but God loves you anyway. Doesn't that give you so much freedom? You know, Martin Luther the Protestant theologian who sparked the Reformation, he had this really difficult time with his own sin to the point that he would, he would flagellate himself, he would beat himself, he, would, he was trying to eradicate sin from his flesh, from his body. He, just, he couldn't find a way to cope with his own sin. But then he came to know the grace of God and the love of Christ, and it revolutionized his life. He still struggled some after that. He actually struggled with depression. And, you know, there's really interesting stories of where he's translating the Bible into German because there was no German translation. And these demons would come, and he would take his ink bottle and throw it at the devil and curse the devil. Get out of here. I'm trying to translate the Scripture, you know. Now he, he might have been a little crazy. I don't know. I mean, if he were alive today, they'd probably put him on something. But here's the point. Martin Luther, after all that understanding of God's grace and love, he said this. Uh, sin boldly but trust more boldly still his point was he'd spent the first half of his life so afraid of messing up that he couldn't do anything and he learned that in the love of God and the grace of God I can just go for stuff and I can mess up and I can fail and I can be bold in that failure because my faith in God's grace is even bolder Sin boldly, but trust more boldly still. That's what God's love can do for you. It lets you know that you're supported and wanted, that you're cared for, that you're provided for, no matter what. Have you ever, anyone here ever bought an actual individual stock on the stock market? Why not? Well, what if I lose all my money? What if, it, what, if the, what if that company goes out of business? It tanks and I lose my money. But what if I told you, invest as much money as you want in any stock you want, and if it loses money, I'll just reimburse you and you can invest in another one. Would you invest in stocks then? There's no downside 
right? This is hard to believe, but Jesus is kind of like the, it's the no downside reality of life. And it, it doesn't, like, let me make clear, Luther wasn't saying, like, go out and intentionally sin. He was saying, just be so confident in the grace of God that you, you aren't, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, you're not debilit- it's not debilitating to worry about messing up. But I know a lot of us, we, we're held back in life because we, we're too afraid of failing. And God says, don't worry about failing. I got you. Walk the tightrope. I'm the net. You know? Go for it. That's, that's what the love of God, that's one thing the love of God can do. It helps you face any hardship head on because you know you've got the support of your father behind you. You know, I remember when I was uh, in my 20s and kind of trying different things, I, I, I actually started a, a little business. Uh, I ran a business for somebody and um, I just felt like I can do this. I can do it. But it wasn't, I don't think that came from within me. I think it came from my home where my parents were telling me, you can do it. They believed in me. Your father in heaven believes in you. And again, not because, not because, uh, I mean, I failed in both of those things. <laughs> but that, was, that wasn't the point. They didn't believe in me that I, that I had everything I needed to succeed in everything. They believed in me that they would have me even if I didn't succeed. Do you see the difference? And this is that subtle distinction that's the difference between, honestly, kind of a humanistic, pagan <laughs> way of thinking and a biblical way of thinking about your value and worth in Christ. Is that your value and worth in Christ is actually the value that comes from Christ. Your power in Christ is the power that comes from Christ. Your, your optimism and hope for the future is really the trust that God is going to do something good. But then he, he works it out through you. Because here's the thing. People who, who don't take risks, they don't succeed in anything. But people who do take risks, they succeed in a lot of things. And so God's giving us that invitation. And then the other thing is this. When you know that you're delighted in, you can take joy in almost any situation. Because, as you know, we've been defining joy as the idea that someone's happy to see you, that someone delights in you, that you belong, that you're wanted. Joy is relational. And so if God loves you like that, then you can have joy no matter what. No matter what you're doing. I, when I was um, graduating from high school, I went to visit a college that I was really interested in. They had one of these field days, and they invite people to come, and then all the students are there, and they invite the seniors to come. And I had to leave work to drive an hour to get to the college for the field day. And I had on my, my polo uh, work shirt. And I got in the car, and I took it off, and I threw on a T-shirt, and I drove an hour to this school. And I ended up seeing some guys there that I knew, just knew them a little bit. And they went to a different school that I went to. Um, and they were, they were I, let's just be clear, I was not cool in high school. I know I'm really cool now. But in high school, I was not cool. And these guys were cool. But they were like, hey, come along with us. 
But then I just noticed they started making weird comments throughout the day. They're like, oh, that's funny. That'd be about as funny as having a pocket on your back. And I was like, that's a weird joke. They all laughed. I'm like, I don't get the joke, but I'm not going to ask because that's weird. And then, they're, and then later, you know, oh, yeah, I mean, if I had a pocket on my back, maybe. I'm like, that's just weird. And then at some point I looked down, and there was the tag on the front of my shirt, and I had a pocket on my back. So they had been making fun of me for like three hours and not telling me and letting me go around all these other people and not a single person told me. So how does that feel? Man, you feel angry, you feel embarrassed, you feel down, you feel stupid, right? Just nothing feels good about that. But you know what? I'm going to be honest. It didn't really shake me that much because I didn't need their approval. I wasn't looking for their approval. I knew the approval that I had. And yeah, at, at first it stung, and then I was like, whatever, they're jerks. <laughs> Move on with life. But sometimes if you don't know the love of God, that can haunt you for decades, right? Those things can, can eat away at you for a long time. But when you have the love of God, it won't. It doesn't have power over you anymore. You know, and so this is really what we're talking about, is that it's important that in your deepest parts, all the broken parts of you, and I'm using that term very generically, I'm not trying to get too, too technical here, but all the broken parts in you, all the hurting parts, all the parts of you that didn't feel loved by your own parents, all the parts of you that don't feel accepted at work or at school or by society, all the parts of you that feel inadequate, all the parts of you that in a, in a, in a negative kind of condemning way remind you that you're not enough, all of those parts need to know that Jesus loves you, delights in you, that God takes joy and pleasure in you specifically. And that no matter what happens in life, you are loved, you are accepted, you are wanted, you are the apple in God's eye. You know that phrase, the apple of someone's eye? You know where that comes from? That comes from God's love. It's, it's a biblical phrase. God's love for his people. The apple of his eye. What a beautiful reality. So church, no. Know deep within. Know that you know that you know that you are you are someone's um, just that that special that special person to someone, and it's not just anyone. It's the God of the universe. And the fact that he has multiple special someones does not detract in any way from the great delight that he takes in you personally. This is the profound distillation of all the great theology that people can, can consider and ponder. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. So here's my takeaway. God doesn't, just, God doesn't just love, it's that he loves you 
specifically. And you can have incredible confidence knowing that God is with you in all things. You've got a dad who's going to back you up every single time. He's going to pick you up when you fall. He's going to carry you through the rough parts. He's going to high-five you when you succeed. And he's going to be a shoulder to cry on when you fail. This is the kind of God you have, the kind of father that you have in him. And you've got this beautiful bride slash brother, I know it sounds weird, in Jesus Christ and friend who's going to be there with you no matter what. And he's going to love you no matter what. There's nothing you can do to change that. So what I'd love to do is just pray for you and then we're going to close out with a song.